The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Friday, June 3rd. Nitro Beers with Sam Adams founder Jim Cook. Presented by Jim Cook, Boston Beer. Good evening and welcome to Sabre. Just to make sure everyone's in the right place, this is the room for Nitro Beers, tonight's salon. My name's Steve Broad, and I'm brewmaster for Free State Brewing Company in Lawrence, Kansas, and I'll be your host for this evening's salon. Sabre, now in its ninth year and well-established as one of America's premier beer and food events, is brought to you by the Brewers Association, the national nonprofit association resentment representing the country's small and independent craft brewers, which also produces the Great American Beer Festival, another of America's premier beer events coming up in early October in Denver, Colorado. The Brewers Association also publishes craftbeer.com, which is your best source for information about these events and the wild, wider world, maybe wilder world, of American craft beer. All of our salons are being recorded for podcast listening by craftbeerradio.com, and they'll be posted a week from now to craftbeer.com, your best source for information about the wild. Yeah, I think I said that already. Anyway, you guys are welcome to ask questions as we go along tonight, right, Jim? Um, please, so we get your questions and Jim's answers, uh, please stick your hand up. I'll be up here uh, with a mic. I'll be glad to bring it around to you so we get you on the recording. Now, Nitro beers have been around for a while now, but they've really risen in popularity in recent years, due in no small part to the efforts of brewers like Boston's Sam Adams, who have brought innovative Nitro brews to a wider market. So tonight we'll hear about the art, the science, and maybe even the personality of some of those beers from Sam Adams' founder, Jim Cook. Thank you, Steve. And it's a pleasure for me uh, first to be introduced by Steve, who I've known, what, 20, 25 years? A long time. And he was a pioneer in craft brewing in the middle of the country. There was like a big empty space until Free State Brewing started making craft beer in the middle of that flyover zone as uh, all we snotty East Coasters talk about it. So um, it's a pleasure to have a friendly face here and uh, it's a pleasure to be introduced by one of craft brewing's pioneers. Um, and tonight uh, we're gonna talk about nitro beers and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about our nitro project uh, and our history with nitro beers and what nitrogen does with beer. Uh, I'm going to talk maybe, I don't know, half the time or something like that and uh, also we'll welcome questions if there's something you really want to ask that seems really confusing or befuddling in the middle, just interrupt me because it could be a really boring 30 minute monologue. <laughs> because uh, I'm way too sober for that to be <laughs> entertaining. Um, so uh, I'll just go back in history. We started working with um, nitrogenating beer back in the um, middle 90s. Um, and in England, there was a little bubble, uh, a moment for uh, nitro beers. And, and um, sort of the history of 
of nitro beers um, came from actually a lot of work that Guinness did. Uh, so you go to England, you know, 60 years ago or whatever, and the normal dispensing technique was what's called real ale, which uh, is a unique and wonderful English tradition. Essentially, the beer would leave the brewery um, in an incomplete state of fermentation. And yeah, it worked in a market where the beer went straight from the brewery to the pub. Uh, and the pub was often owned or controlled by the brewery, a tide house. So they could basically use the cellar of the pub as uh, the maturation cellar for the beer, because it would have you know, active, uh, still fermenting yeast in the beer. It would finish its fermentation in the cellar managed by uh, the cellarman at the pub. The pubs would have somebody who uh, would know when to tap the cask, who could vent the, the CO2 out of the cask, and uh, when the beer, quote unquote, dropped bright, which meant the yeast had finished fermentation and um, would either rise to the top or occasionally with some bottom settling ale yeast drop to the bottom, and then uh, the cellarman would tap that keg. It had a shelf life of maybe three days um, and was uh, drawn out of the cask by a hand pump. So it was pumped out of the cask. Those are those beer engines that you see uh, on the counter of an English pub. And of course, then as that was pulled out of the cask, uh, air filled the rest of the cask and sat on top of the beer as the level went down. And that was one of the reasons it had such a small, uh, such a short shelf life, because the cask would fill with oxygen. So in three, four, five days, the beer would start to uh, you know, uh, oxygenate and get a stale taste. So that's real ale. That's basically how that system worked. And you know, it was very difficult, very labor intensive, required uh, exceptional skill uh, by the cellarman at each pub. And Guinness, uh, being, you know, which became quite a big company quite early, needed a way to sort of industrialize that process. Um, they wanted to make a beer that would have some of the taste of a real ale. And what they did is said, well, and, and of course, uh, one of the key attributes of real ale was very low levels of carbonation because the keg was not a, a pressurized vessel. It was open to the air because it had to vent out CO2. So uh, the English beers to American tastes were, you know, flat and warm. Well, they weren't really flat. There was a certain level of CO2 in there, maybe one volume of CO2 per volume of liquid versus the two and a half to three that's typical with American beer. So sort of 35% of the level of CO2, enough for a little tongue sting, but not uh, the fizziness that uh, beer from the rest of the world has. Uh, and Guinness needed a way to figure out how to make something that sort of tasted like a real ale. So they figured out how to push the beer um, 
with nitrogen instead of CO2. The dispensing system in pretty much all the bars in the rest of the world, uh, you get a keg and you put CO2 pressure on it. The CO2 pressure pushes the beer out of the keg and up to the faucet. And the longer the draw, uh, the further up you go, the more pressure you put on the keg. And that uh, preserves the, the carbonation levels that we're all familiar with. When uh, you push that with nitrogen, uh, something very different happens because uh, the, uh, the nitrogen's not soluble in beer. CO2 is. You put CO2 pressure on beer and uh, it dissolves in the beer. And that's why like, you get to the end of a keg uh, at a bar and you've got all that CO2 on it. Uh, the beer is foamy. You know, it, it's overcarbonated at the end of the keg a lot of times. But with nitrogen, it doesn't go into the beer. It just physically pushes it out of the keg. So that's, you know, that's why Guinness is often on a different tap. Um, that's why uh, the foam is different. Uh, and most importantly, uh, something that we're all familiar with with Guinness is that it has a creamier, softer palate to it. Um, a really good Guinness is creamy, almost silky. And that is not a result of the beer itself. That is a result of the gas inside the beer. Uh, nitrogen just pushes it out, and the beer has a very low level of carbonation, um, which makes it creamy and smooth and velvety. Uh, once you carbonate a beer, uh, it changes the flavor of the beer uh, in a transformational way. So for us, um, you know, we started doing this with some brown ales back uh, in the 1990s. We had a beer called Boston Cream, um, which uh, we served in Boston uh, and Whitbread, very classic English brewer back then. Um, one of their brewers came over and had it in Boston, thought it was delicious. And uh, so we collaborated with them and they made Boston Cream Ale for uh, England for four or five years. Um, so that was our beginning of uh, using nitrogen on beer. And what we realized in, in this experiment, if you will, was the, that when you, that in a sense, carbon dioxide is the hidden ingredient in beer. You know, when you think about, well, what are the ingredients in beer? And people will say, well, there's, you know, classically water, yeast, malt, and hops. I mean, those are the, the ingredients that brewers put into beer. But uh, the carbon dioxide has as much of an impact on the flavor as changing up the other ingredients. Um, what the CO2 does is gives you uh, this sense of uh, bite, of tongue sting, uh, that, that makes it refreshing. Uh, think about the difference between uh, still water and sparkling water. I mean, it's just water. That's uh, the same thing, but uh, you know, think of club soda versus just tap water. They're both water. The only difference is that uh, in the club soda, it's carbonated. And it gives it uh, a kind of refreshing bite. Um, 
physically what happens is uh, CO2 bubbles form on your tongue um, and they sting it and they create acidity. They create uh, an acid called carbonic acid in your mouth um, as, uh, you know, as soon as you put it in your mouth. It creates a bite and an acidity that you don't think of as ingredients. So basically carbon dioxide is this uh, unacknowledged, uh, kind of hidden ingredient in beer. So about uh, three years ago, we decided to begin to look at what would happen if uh, we nitrogenated various styles of beer. And you know, craft beer today in the United States, I mean, this is like the most innovative, inventive set of brewers that has ever existed in the world. There's just so much new cool stuff that everybody's doing and it's sort of in some ways um, exciting but it's also uh, more and more crowded and harder and harder to find any white space. It's like, let's do something new. Um, it's already been done. What really hadn't been explored was uh, the use of nitrogen because it's uh, quite difficult, especially if you're going to put it in a can. So that was three years ago. It led to the Sam Adams Nitro project, um, which involved taking, I think we did like 70 or 80 different beers and uh, took the carbonation out and replaced it with nitrogen. Uh, so we could taste all these different beer styles to see what happened when you put them on nitro instead of carbonating them. And most of them were better off with CO2, the vast majority. But there were like 10 of them that became really, really interesting. So we're going to walk through um, three of those. Uh, I think the first beer we're going to try uh, is Nitro IPA. And actually, if you're quiet, you can hear what happens when you open these things. You hear that? Yeah, um, that is the nitrogen. So it doesn't sound like a normal can. And the pour is quite dramatic. I don't know if you can see it, but you get this storm going on in the glass, this drama and theater. The bubbles are going down. It's very weird, um, but it has to do with convection and temperatures. So the bubbles go down uh, on the outside of the glass. They actually come up in the middle, so they recirc like that. Um, it takes about a minute and a half for uh, the beer to uh, form and for the nitrogen to come out of the beer, you'll notice the bubbles are, by and large, very small, tight bubbles that, uh, and they were very stable. Um, like the head on a Guinness is very stable. That really has not so much to do with the beer. It's, it's just very simple, like high school physics. Um, a nitrogen bubble is in equilibrium with the atmosphere. Right, you got a little bubble. It's full of nitrogen. It's 100% nitrogen in there, but the atmosphere is 80% nitrogen. So it's kind of an equilibrium. It takes a long time to expand and pop, whereas a CO2 bubble is kind of in a vacuum. Um, it's 100% CO2, and then the atmosphere is like 2% CO2, depending on how many SUVs are driving around. Maybe it's three. Um, but it's still in effectively a gas vacuum, so a CO2 bubble is 
get big quickly and pops. Whereas uh, nitro bubbles, you get this amazing, fine, dense, very stable foam. And I'll just, well, let's drink it and then I'll show you the can. Okay, so uh, this is a very dramatic example of what nitrogen does to an IPA. And you get a couple of things here. The most dramatic, I mean, you all have had lots of IPAs, I'm gonna guess. Um, you know, from tasting it, what level would you put the perceived bitterness? I mean, I have a number, but. Yeah, that's my number, that's exactly right. So the perceived bitterness, yeah, I'm with you, 50-ish. Um, the actual bitterness, 100. So 100 BUs. That is uh, a very you know, vivid demonstration of what nitro does to a beer. It smooths out the perceived bitterness, basically cuts it in half. So to have uh, a nitro IPA that tastes like a real IPA, you gotta get triple digit bitterness because you don't get that tongue sting, you don't get that carbonic acid. I mean, I was very surprised. First time we did it, we just did it at like 55 with this, and it tasted bland and boring and useless. So we kept amping it up, and it wasn't until we got to 100 bitterness units, which is normally like tongue-scrapingly bitter, just palate-wrecking bitter. Um, but with nitro, it's smooth, it's creamy, um, it's a very soft bitterness, and it brings out different hop elements. I mean, these should be, uh, the hops in here are extremely sort of citrusy. Um, there, uh, in the kettle, we use Zeus and Polaris, um, and then for uh, aromatics and flavor, we use uh, Centennial, Amarillo, Galaxy, Simcoe. Those should be extremely citrusy. I don't get that much citrus. I get a lot of sort of earthiness to it, more like, you know, English hops, like uh, Goldings and Fuggles. So it changes the perceived bitterness and to me changes the hop character. And the only difference is the CO2. Hey Jim, we've got a question. Yeah. Hey, hi Jim. I, uh, the question I have is are you using pure nitrogen or are you using like a 65-35 mix or with CO2 yeah. or what? Yeah, well it's a good question because um, we are not, this is not a draft dispense, right? So um, we, are in a sense though using both. There is some uh, residual CO2 in the beer. Roughly one volume per volume of beer as opposed to like 2.5, 2.8, So because you actually need this, is, it gets somewhat molecular, but you need the CO2 to sort of form nucleation sites for the nitrogen to make the bubbles. Uh, so you need, you need some CO2. So it, it would, uh, to answer your question, it would sort of be 70-30 if you were to measure the volumes of gas, something like that. And um, putting this in a can was an adventure. That took us like three years. I'll show you actually how these cans work. We had to bring the cans in from England. 
Nobody in the U.S. makes these cans. And this is like, you're going to think I'm, this is a little scary, so bear with me. The things I do, for, I'm missing a tooth. <laughs> I've done this once too often. Um, but this is how it's done. In the bottom of the can is this uh, chamber uh, that you can, we call it the nitrogenator. You can call it the widget. Um, and when we can it, this uh, gets full of nitrogen. And we fill it. It's a pretty complicated engineering feat because you've got to like get nitrogen. You've got to get all the air out of it because you don't want it to oxidize. You get the nitrogen and you fill it right away. And then you uh, seam it and flip it upside down so that the pressure of the liquid forces the nitrogen into this chamber. So you start with this. You have to perfectly size the bubble of nitrogen so that it can be forced into this chamber. And so it's under pressure, a lot of pressure. When you open it, you reduce the pressure. The gas comes rushing out of this cylinder through that little hole in the middle. So all of those bubbles come out of that one little hole. Um, I think it's about 1,000 PSI at the hole. Um, so that's what makes all those bubbles so quickly. Let's do the next beer, but if there's questions while we're serving the next one. Yes, in the back. Is that widget the technology? Is that the same technology that Guinness uses? Um, roughly. You know, uh, Guinness is protected by patents. Heineken has a different one protected by patents. This is the same one, um, but it's available. Uh, it's actually patented by the can maker. So if we buy the cans, uh, and it's an, an adventure because you have to sh basically ship air from England. We're shipping <laughs> containers of air that happen to have cans in them. Um, and we bring them here to be filled. We're trying to uh, work with the can guy to see if we can make them here in the US so this will be available to more brewers. But as far as I know right now, we are the only brewer in the United States um, doing nitro cans. There's a lot of nitro beers out there, but they're all draft. Or uh, there's some bottles, but you can't get much nitrogen in the bottle. Remember, nitrogen's not soluble in beer. So you can kind of get some in the headspace, and you get a, a, you get a sort of a little decent foam if you like shake the bottle and like pour it, but you don't get this long, stable head. You really need to have uh, a widget to do that. Yes. No, you can retrofit it. Um, you've got to like immediately shift the cans and twist them, and you got to speed stuff up. You can do it. It was a lot of trial and error because you got to get the exact right amount of gas in there so that you get the uh, you get a bubble of gas that when it's under pressure will fill that chamber, but it can't be too little because um, you won't get the foam and it can't be too much because you won't get the required amount of liquid in there. So yeah, it took us three years to do that.
I don't think so. I think it's a fairly transitory sensory element. No, the, the carbonic acid will wash off. Uh, well, you know, in the name of science, do it until it does happen, and then let me know, and then call 911 so that you can get to the ER so they can uh, detox you. Okay, so we have, does everybody have the next one? Um, this is our nitro stout. Because of the color, you get even more drama here. It's just uh, a little bit more contrast. And you can slowly see the beer pulling itself together at the bottom. So this is a coffee stout. Um, when we started this project, we actually started with a dry stout um, with the idea of, well, let's make fresh American craft stout. That, you know, when people go to Ireland and they get Guinness at the brewery where it's totally fresh and they come back raving about it and they say it's not the same beer here. I don't know, but I believe it's the same beer here. It's just not fresh. So. Uh, and because a lot of the roasted notes in a good dry stout are fairly unstable. Um, so what we discovered is uh, it was hard to get Guinness off of a nitro line. I mean, just as a practical matter, bars would have one nitro line and they weren't gonna take Guinness off because Guinness is Guinness. And people would come in and want their, their Guinness. And if they had uh, anybody else's stout on there, um, it was not an acceptable substitute. So we started playing around with um, other things to do with stout, um, particularly that would build on this creaminess of the nitro experience. So we put coffee in it. And you know, coffee tends to have a, uh, a bit of acidity and bite. So we uh, looked, uh, along with a coffee roaster, all over the world for coffees that had very low acidity, very low bite, something that would complement this silky, creamy taste. So we were looking for coffees essentially with a lot of mocha and chocolate notes in it. We ended up with two of them, um, uh, one from uh, the Indonesian island of Sumatra, a Sumatra mandoling, which is again, low acid, low roast, um, sort of cappuccino, mocha, dark chocolate notes and a similar set of things from this weird Indian coffee um, that it's a, I think it's called Indian Monsoon Malabar. Uh, it's a coffee that uh, was popular in England. The ships that took the IPAs to England would return with coffee and they would pile it on the decks um, as well as in the hold of the ship and the exposure to the elements, um, took the acidity out of it and made it much smoother. Uh, and it's no longer uh, shipped on, on the open decks of vessels. What they do now is they leave it out in the monsoon rains and storms in India for three or four months and then dry it and ship it to England. So you should, uh, in constructing the nitro coffee stout, we were looking for soft, 
mocha, dark chocolate notes rather than the astringency that you get in a standard dry stout. We didn't really want that acrid, that burnt, that astringent note. We wanted to use the nitro to make something silky and creamy. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't have that bite. Um, and you know, some people like the bite. We didn't want that. We wanted something really kind of like uh, uh, a mocha milkshake for grown-ups. <laughs> yeah. Most of them didn't, and it was somewhat unpredictable. Um, you know, what? as you might expect, like the classic lagers, none of them worked. You know, a Pilsner didn't work, a, a Hellas didn't work, a Pils didn't work. Um, they were just, it was, those were non-starters. It just tasted flat. Um, now, we, it was kind of trial and error. The three that we released, um, were a, uh, a coffee stout, uh, a white ale, um, and that was very interesting as well because the nitro changed some of the spice characters. Um, it made the coriander more aromatic. Uh, it changed the orange from kind of that pithy orange to a more orange blossom kind of flavor. So that one worked pretty well. Um, and the third one was the IPA, there were a couple that were kind of five, six, seven, eight, and you know, that were in the top. Um, one was brown ale. That, as you might expect, works. That soft malt palate works really well um, on nitro. My belief is that if something tastes good, it will have commercial appeal. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's a little insulting to drinkers to say, oh, this is really good, but you're not worthy. I mean, <laughs> I happen to believe that people uh, have good palates and know what they like. And I mean, and now I'll go on a little rant, but I've been drinking since 6.30 this morning. Um, <laughs> One of the things that I think many of us as brewers are fearful of is um, the slow creep of what I will call phony connoisseurship in craft beer, which is really the idea that, oh, there are these great beers, but the masses can't appreciate them. Only some of us can appreciate them because they're really bitter or really sour or really blah, blah, blah. Um, and you know, uh, the masses aren't worthy, but because we are this self-selected elite, um, we like them. I happen to believe, and this was explained to me by uh, a friend of mine who's a, a master of wine, and it was his term, phony connoisseurship, because he was, I mean, he's a guy who knows wine. He was, I think, the second or third master of wine in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and he said, Jim, it just happens. It's like people, they want the most tannic Cabernet out there. Uh, and they tell everybody how awesome it is, um, but you might not appreciate it because it's so you know, hard to drink. And he says, well, it's because it's terrible. <laughs> That's why people don't like it. 
And the other example, he was like, well, they're scotch drinkers, and they want the peatiest, smokiest scotch. And they say, oh, this is so wonderful, but you may not like it. Well, the reason you may not like it is because it sucks. <laughs> so I, that's just my philosophy. My belief is if something's really good, it's good because it tastes good. And that's my definition of a good beer. It tastes good. Um, that's not to say there aren't interesting beers um, that are certainly worth trying and drinking, but I drink a lot of beer. Uh, and I drink lots of types of beers. But when I go home, I don't want interesting. I don't want extreme. I just want a reliably rewarding beer experience. So that's my standard of what is a great beer. A great beer tastes good. It's kind of an oxymoron to say it's a great beer. It just tastes terrible. Um, I've had this discussion with my wife about opera music. She said, well, opera music is better than it sounds. <laughs> huh. That's pretty weird. So I, I don't know if I need this. I got a loud enough voice. And I will say, uh, I love your beer. And also, I, I drink them really quickly. So this, this, uh, this question is kind of weird. But uh, in regards to the nitro beers, uh, is the shelf life reduced at all compared to the carbonated beers? I mean, or are they comparable? No, it's a good question. Um, the practical answer is a little bit. Um, but it, not to do with the beer itself. Um, all of the uh, you know, manipulations, everything we have to do to get the beer into the cans um, makes it hard to keep the dissolved oxygen levels as low as they would be with a standard filling. So there are multiples of what we have for a normal beer in a bottle or a can. So luckily these styles lend themselves to accepting a certain a higher amount of DO in there. But uh, at least we're not good enough at this point to get the DOs to the point where we would get a bottle. So yes, a little bit, but the styles, at least so far, are very accepting of a little more DO and some oxidation. And do we have the next beer? Okay. This sucks, I don't have a beer. Um, which one? Oh, there it is, beautiful. Yes, okay, good. Um, so this is one of the other ones that came out tasting pretty good from our experimentation. Um, it's an unusual beer. Uh, we, we release some in bottles occasionally. It's in our barrel room collection. It's an American Creek. Uh, so this is, uh, it's got some of this sort of weird ingredient called KMF. Um, and, and one of the beers we're pouring out there is uh, a 100% KMF. Um, it's KMF Grand Cru, uh, which is a very cool beer, actually, at the, uh, the Australian Beer Awards last week. Uh, it got picked as uh, the champion beer in the world there. And it, it is, thank you, it's cool. And it may in some ways be an acquired taste, so this may be, uh, or may not be, a counterexample, and you'll have to judge yourself. 
So this has this KMF stuff in it. KMF, it's our term, it stands for cosmic mother funk. Um, <laughs> KMF is this weird spontaneous fermentation by whatever organisms live in the 150-year-old brewery that we're in in Boston. We scraped the walls, we cultured stuff. Whatever lives in that brewery lives in the KMF and then we, uh, and it, it has, I mean, some of the uh, very identifiable, it starts with Saccharomyces, that creates, uh, you know, alcohol. Uh, then there's Acetobacillus that eats the alcohol and turns them to vinegar. And it takes a year in a wooden, uh, big wooden barrel to age it. Um, over that year, you get a long, slow microoxidation, which turns the vinegar basalmic and sweet. Um, so you get a, uh, this basalmic uh, sweetness in it. And then in the background, you've got bread, uh, Brettanomyces, Lactobacillus for a softer sour, Pediococcus for some uh, like diaper pale funk. Um, <laughs> so it's got all those things going on. Um, and so I don't know, you'll have to decide. I actually think that it's not an acquired taste. So it is um, the KMF and some other beer uh, that sits on a bed of, of Balaton cherries. They're a dark Hungarian cherry. Um, that's very tart. But when you put it on nitro, I mean, to me, I, to me this is very pleasant. You might, you can make your evaluation whether you think it's an acquired taste or not. I happen to think if you served it to somebody, they'd say, yeah, I like that. I believe. Actually, let me ask. This is a little survey. Okay, who drinks it and says this is an acquired taste? No? Who drinks it and says you could give this to a friend and they'd say, oh, that's pretty good. Interest different. Good. Well, that's okay. So there's my theory. Good beer tastes good. Pretty simple. Um, but what the nitro does, it changes the character of the cherries. Um, in the carbonated version of this, the cherries are very tart. Um, you get a little sour in them. They're very sharp. Here, I don't get that tart, sharp, sour. I get more like cherry pie filling to me rather than a sharp, you know, bitter sort of sour cherry. And that's the nitro. Yes, Steve. Uh, going back to the uh, nitro coffee stout, for the coffee, do you hot brew or cold brew, or do you just dump the beans in the secondary? Cold brew. We actually do a long, slow, cold in extraction of the beans. So it's what you would think of as, as cold brew that's going on now. It's like 12 hours. Any other questions? Yeah. You don't like to experiment. You have an old faithful that you like to drink. I feel like we're in a safe space. So, <laughs> like, what, oh, yeah. what, what is your old faithful? What do you like to go home and drink? Oh, like, what you go to my drink? house, open my refrigerator. Well, I actually have a kegerator now. I'm happy about that. <laughs> Naturally. Um, you're going to find Boston Lager. That's it? Yeah. Nice. I mean, because, you know, that I know I'm going to get a rewarding beer experience. I, I mean, and I've been drinking it pretty much every day of my life for 32 years. <laughs> I haven't gotten tired of it. I used to be bald. 
<laughs> it's worked out. I know people expect me to have some like weird thing uh, there that nobody's ever heard of, but no. Uh, well, right now I got two heads on my kegerator, and I've got Boston Lager, and I got summer ale. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, essentially, uh, what, you know, the, that tap forward, tap backward thing is you constrict the line so you'll create more bubbles. I mean, we just, you can do the same thing by cracking it halfway open and do the same thing. So if you know what you're doing, you can get exactly that same effect. But again, I, uh, I love the ritual. I think, you know, I, what Guinness has done is cool. You know, they've just created this reverence around the presentation of beer. And, you know, as a brewer, I like that. You know, with wine, there's all this bullshit that goes with it. <laughs> you know, that creates this mystique to it. You know, brewers could have, um, beer deserves the same, you know, dignity and reverence that wine does. So I'm okay, I think it's pretty cool. I know you all are bashful, and we've got a few more minutes. Oh, all right. Wow. <laughs> this is pretty good. Um, this is a beer that we're serving, and this is the Nitro White Ale. So um, this is what it looks like. It's obviously cloudy. It's got a bunch of wheat mold in it. We don't uh, filter it bright. And what uh, you'll find with uh, uh, it's a, a white ale, but the nitro will just make it really uh, creamy and, and soft and, and change uh, the orange character to, like I said, something more like orange blossoms. Now I'm going to try something, actually, that I've never done this. But, um, you know, one of the ways that I've always enjoyed designing is just sort of imagining new beers. Um, is to blend them. Uh, it's like, you know, terrible, but... Um, and you do get, again, uh, that same cascading uh, that we got earlier, but one of the ways that uh, I've always used just to approximate new beers without having to do a brew and wait a month and do another brew is just to blend things. Um, Actually, this is really horrible, but um, when uh, year, like five, six years ago, um, we were working on a, uh, one of the first white IPAs, uh, and we, I wanted some citrus in it. It was, again, it's called Whitewater IPA. It's one of the first IPAs to use fruit in it, and uh, we used uh, apricots in it, and I was trying to mimic, you know, what does, uh, if I get something really citrusy um, with a soft orange fruit note in it, what will it taste like in the beer? And God forgive me, I got a can of Fresca. <laughs> Fresca peach. 
and put it in there. And it, it was very helpful to just give me a general idea. If we go in this direction, what is it going to taste like? So um, I, for those of you who are brewers or want to be brewers, it's OK to mix stuff and use it to sort of simulate flavors. So I'm sort of interested in what would happen with a white IPA uh, if we uh, added a cherries to it. And orange and cherry work quite well. It's a, uh, a, a structural element of, uh, what's it called, a Manhattan or an old-fashioned, uh, old right? There's a drink that's got whiskey and orange and cherry juice, and it's kind of a nice set of flavors together. So I'm wondering if uh, orange, and, what are, orange and cherry It's not bad. <laughs> it's actually pretty interesting. So I learned something with everyone here. If, if we come out with something with orange and cherry in it, this is where it started. <laughs> Any other uh, questions? Or, you know, we're certainly welcome to keep drinking. Is the American Creek available in stores? Or? Occasionally. Yeah, because um, we have a, a keg of it. So um, it takes a long time to make. And we've only got this one tank that we converted one of our aging tanks into a gigantic cherry strainer. So we, you know, that's true. It's, it's like oh, it's got a column in the middle um, that's like a sieve. And we fill the column with cherries. Uh, and then we'd pump beer through it. So we've only got one place to do the cherry infusion, and then we have to put KMF in it, which takes a year to make. So we can make a certain amount of it, and we're able to sell all of that, and maybe someday you know, we'll make more of it. So it does sort of appear and disappear. It's like Brigadoon, you know? It's like there, <laughs> then it's not there. And then it comes back, and then it goes away again. Um, so yes, it is. It's in the barrel room collection in those, uh, you know, uh, 75 ml bottles that are kind of shaped like a barrel and have a cork in the top of them. Do we have any more beers to pass around, or are we done? No, we're done. Okay. You're you're the only one that gets extra beers, Jim. Oh, jeez. <laughs> All right, well, if there's any more cans in there, we can pass them around if you'd like, because I think we've, I mean, we've got a few more minutes, or if, if everybody, we started early. So uh, if you'd like to, should we just uh, release everybody to go? Okay, so we'll pass some of the American Creek around. Good. No, no, I'm having a good time. So. Yes. <laughs> well, go on to YouTube <laughs> and just put in H-E-L-I-Y-U-M, Helium. So we did. We played around with it for April Fool's Day uh, a year or two ago. Um, and I nearly passed out 
Because, uh, you know, I mean, you breathe helium and you think your lungs are full, except you got no oxygen. But you think you're actually breathing. And then you talk, and, and, but you haven't put any oxygen in your body for a couple of minutes. So I did this video on it and then nearly passed out from oxygen deprivation and brain death. And it didn't work. It wasn't good for the beer. Right now, I do not know of another gas that would do anything interesting, which is not to say it doesn't exist. Anybody else? I mean, I'm just happy to, you know. They're just uh, glad to see the beer in front of you. Pour beer for you guys. Um, and if you'd like, I can just let you, uh, you know, drink. Oh, there's a question. What would I have done if I didn't brew beer? That's a really good question, and I just have no idea. It's like asking me, what would you have done if you were born a salamander? I mean, I just can't imagine it. I mean, it's in to say it couldn't have happened, but I don't know. But you, you have to uh, understand a little bit. I'm uh, somewhat, well, a unique situation. I am the sixth oldest son in a row to be a brewer. I'm the only sixth generation brewmaster in the United States. My father was a brewmaster, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, and my great-great-great-grandfather were all brewmasters here and before that in Germany. So I really don't know how many generations. So there was a certain amount of destiny <laughs> that went into this. Though I didn't go into brewing, you know, my dad uh, was a brewmaster. He got out of uh, brewmaster school in 1948, and there were a thousand breweries in the United States, and they were all doing well. When I started Sam Adams 36 years later, that thousand had dwindled down to about 50, which meant that 95% of the jobs for brewmasters disappeared, were gone. It was a really cr crummy way to try to make a living. And um, he did not want me to go back into brewing. He, uh, I remember when I told him I was going to quit the job I had, which was a pretty good job, and uh, I was going to try to start a small brewery. You know, he looked at me, and I kind of I was thinking I would get like this fatherly, oh, that's so great. You're continuing this family tradition. I'm really happy to, that you're willing to try that. He didn't say any of that. He's like, Jim, you've done some stupid things in your life. This is the dumbest thing you have ever done. So I was like, thanks for the encouragement, Dad. I do. I have one. Um, and, you know, I had this conversation with him. It's like, I forget how old he was, maybe 22 or something like that. And I was like, Charlie, um, there's 300 million people in the United States, one of them. One of them is a seventh generation brewer because he worked at the brewery for a while. One of them, of the 300 pe million people, is a seventh generation brewer. And it happens to be you. And, uh, and sort of the same kind of thing that happened with my dad. He looked at me and said, Dad, 
you're such an asshole. <laughs> you got to do what you wanted to do, and don't I get to do what I want to do? And he loves working with kids. He's a high school counselor and not a brewer, so I'm okay with that. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're about at the uh, end of our allotted time. Jim, I, I just want, I want to say one thing before everybody goes, which is that, you know, a lot of us that have been in the business for a long time, aside from the fact that, that several of us probably owe some debts of gratitude to Jim for some of the things that he's done, but we all get ex accused, of, and people say that with success comes a lack of, and size comes a lack of creativity and a lack of ideas and a lack of new things. So I think that tonight you successfully proved to us that that is not the way it has to be because obviously you have continued to innovate and be successful. So thanks for coming to talk to us. Please, everyone, thanks, good cook. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.